historical concerns about the date of the book of Daniel go all the way back to Porphyry, a virulent anti-Christian neo-Platonist philosopher of the late 3rd century, whose writings are no longer in existence, but is known only through the refutations of his arguments as they are contained in Jerome's commentary on Daniel. Porphyry challenged especially the visions in 7 through 12, believing them to have been written after the events supposedly happened. He conceded the visions were historically accurate, but he argued that Daniel was written as if it were a predictive prophecy, but it couldn't have been, because that's not what happens with the gods. He was actually written during the first half of the 2nd century BC, after the supposed events of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. The prophecies that attempted to prophesy events later into the reign of Antiochus were inaccurate, and therefore the book was unreliable. 3rd century Greek philosopher critiquing the book of Daniel. Now, what's so interesting about that is that most modern critics of Daniel are convinced they thought up that argument. They're convinced that they came to this conclusion through things like archaeology and the Enlightenment. And it's like, this is the beauty of knowing the fathers, right? Which I don't well enough. It's all been here before. Like, like this, this clever, postmodern, rationalistic, atheistic stuff is not new. It's just got a different code on, right? It, it's got a different, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't say cinnamon on the package, but it's cinnamon on the inside. It smells the same, right? And, and so that's just stunning to me by itself. And that his argument was, it must be, it can't be actual prophecy, so it must be, about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, that was happening later, right? Uh, this is during the Seleucid time in, in Judea, the Maccabees, all that stuff. It must be from there, but then, therefore, it's wrong because it doesn't line up the way it should because the history says a different thing than what happened there. Well, that's, well, that's convenient, don't you think? What a convenient argument, right? Uh, it can't be, a priori, it, it can't be what it says it is. It must be this other thing, but it's wrong about this other thing, so it's wrong, and we don't have to deal with it. <laughs> It's just like, like there is no actual um, thought in that. Instead, it is, it is just dismissal. And it's powerful. It's powerful when someone argues that way. So I find it, I find it fascinating that that's still the argument, is especially when the argument that it's based on or focused on that era is, is nonsensical itself from the, from the archaeology we have now. And that's, that's what we're going to do in the podcast here. One of two things we're going to do in the podcast here today, uh, as we try to get back on our feet, the 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 MacBook is still at the shop in parts. I haven't heard from the guy. There's another MacBook. It's sitting right there. You know what I don't know, and I should check. Oh no. I think it's I think it's okay. What I don't know is if the power that I've got hooked up into this one would actually work because it's going through that. Oh, that's oh, I gotta watch that. I would hate for everything to turn off in the middle of this. Um. Anyway, it's sitting right there. <laughs> uh, it is not entirely set to go the way I need it to be set to go and everything, but it's enough. It's enough. It's enough that we could do this this morning a little more better -er than, than we were. And, and the goal then today is to, well, not be from the cuff. I got, I got a lot of good responses from you via email, 
why you listen, what to do. It was very encouraging to me. Um, the most discouraging was an encouraging one where, where he said, uh, uh, and I forget which one of you wrote this in, but it was like, uh, you know, I don't mind if you, you know, sometimes just talk randomly, but I would stop listening if you just sat down and talked and never did any study or thinking about it. And, and it's like, like that was like a, like a two edged sword for my head because if I just sat down and talked, I'd be talking about what I was studying and thinking about. Like, it's not like there is no not studying and thinking about something in my weird life head. Right. So something's there. Uh, and it's always going to be run through a theological lens. So I don't, I don't know that that could happen, but then it like, it, it, it struck that fear into my heart that I was, I was talking about last week, but by and large, most of you are like, just keep discerning the world through the Christian eyes. And if you can do any Daniel or revelation again, do it. And, and yay for this, right? Yay for this. And so out of this, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think I'm more confident. (laughs) I don't know. Like I said, rejection issues. Uh, I'm more confident, but out of this, at the very least, when yesterday on Friday, which is not my vacation day, but my day off in my vacation week, that wasn't a vacation because it was hours and hours and hours trying to get a MacBook up and working again. Still not done. Um, uh, and why is this? It's because there's too much information in the world. That's why. Um, as I was sitting there, or as I was leaving early in the morning to, to drive an hour away to do this just so I get out of my own head and, and focus, uh, I picked up my Daniel commentary. And with about 30 minutes left before I had to go meet my wife and my battery at 5% and the plug way across the room, I I opened it. I opened it and it felt good. It made me happy. It made, it made me happy because I know I'm going to talk about it now. But the other thing I want to do today along with it is I have to, I got to do this. And the team that's being built for propagating, what do I say? How do I, uh, um, well, th- there will be a name for this eventually, this team. Uh, it's there already, but shh. you know, you don't talk about Fight Club. Shh. Um, the first order of business that we have is to get the newsletter working again. Hopefully that'll be happening within a week. The second order of business is there's a new book that's coming out. I wrote another book. I've there's three books. How is this even possible? Like I'm, I'm too young to have three books published by real publishers. Didn't our self published books as, as if that's an argument for them being better, but it, it kind of, at least historically is right. Um, to me, the reason this is exciting is um, I always wanted to be an author. Like that was it. Like as a young man, uh, I, I was trying to write fiction when I was when I was a kid, and it's kind of hard to believe. That I can, wait, wait, wait. There's three. I wrote three books. They're out. They're going to be out there. They're really there. You can find them and pick them up. And I was I was thinking about this the other day with like my own kids. Like I think my oldest maybe has tried to read one of them. Like, what's that like when your dad wrote books? My, my dad did not write books. So, like, I can't go back and look at my dad's work after he's dead and read his books, right? That's, that's weird and cool. Like, I'm excited about that. I hope, I pray that it, it benefits my children. But I also know it's benefited a lot of people. I know that Broken hit a lot of lives. I know that Echo has sort of and should. It just hasn't had the push to get it out there, which is why I got to talk about without flesh and got to push it. We made so much noise when Broken came out 
Granted, World Viva Everlasting was on a spike at that moment, so there was a lot of things congealing to make it go farther, but we made a lot of noise. So much noise that I had pastors in the LCMS, friends of mine even, reaching out to me and saying, stop promoting the book. This is nonsense. You're selfish. It looks bad. Like, I had people sending me emails saying that, right? And, um, which, I, I, I guess I get it. Like, I have the same, like distaste with self-promotion. I really do. I, I don't like to talk about my own work. I don't show my own videos to my confirmants, which kind of doesn't make sense if you think about it, but, but, that's, but that's the way it is. Anyhow, he said, stop. The same guy, get this, the same guy, like three days after Broken came out, he had gotten it, he read it, he said, I was wrong. Promote it. So I need to promote Without Flesh. I need to promote Echo along with it, which is why I asked CPH if there were a way for me to give you, who watch this channel or listen to this podcast, a way to get both books together for cheaper than buying them separately and individually. And that is why if you go and you pre-order Without Flesh at cph.org and on checkout put Rev Fisk, R-E-F, <laughs> R-E-V-F-I-S-K into the coupon code, you will get 20% off Echo when you buy Without Flesh on pre-order. Only for pre-order. That's a good deal. It's a good deal. Uh, and uh, so I, I highly encourage you to do that. But aside from it just being me saying, hey, go do it, uh, what I want to do now is give you a little taste of some of what's in Without Flesh. <clears throat> there also will be, I'm not going to talk about where just yet, but shortly you will be able to uh, read the first chapter online uh through CPH's stuff as well. Uh, so if you if you want to taste it before you buy, that's coming. But I'm going to try to give you a little bit of that right now as well. But i got to figure out where I was looking at it. Um, it's right there. I don't want to lose this. We're going to throw this over here. All right. So, so oh, man. I, what I, I'm not sure how to do is how to give you the taste without just reading the book. I'm not going to do that. So what one thing I'm going to do at least today is share with you some of the structural layout. Like I'm not going to let you see it just yet. Um, oh, computer's too slow. Come on now, come on now. So for each chapter in the book, there are three headings along with the title, and the first heading is always from Herman Sasa, or Zasa, if you are a Germanophobe uh, file, file, not phobe. <laughs> um, the book itself would not exist without Herman Sasse. The book, to some extent, is Herman Sasse's essay. Um, oh, no, I lost the title. It says it in the start. I can't remember. Uh, it's, it's his essay on the Lord's Supper from the middle of the Lonely Way Volume 2 compilation. Lonely Way Volume 2 is a fairly thick book. It's great. Pick it up. Go read it. Costs you 40 bucks or so, but it's worth it. It really is. Uh, but when I was reading that initially as a, as a young man, young pastor, I think it was probably just my, my first or second year out from seminary. And we just had the mission that I had been sent on close for lack of funding that was never there to begin with. And it's talk about a long, frustrating story. So I'm sitting on my, my porch on a Friday night without a call. I don't know what the future is at all. And uh, I start reading, you know, this volume two of Sasa. My, my buddy Tim Winterson had said you got to read some Sasa, um, and so I, I was working my way through it, and I and I get to this essay, and I just couldn't believe how essential, essa, how essential this 
the set of arguments was and is to the church. This set of discussion points on the centrality of the Lord's Supper to the life of Christianity. And I remember thinking immediately, like, everyone needs to read this essay. The whole, every Christian in America needs to read this essay. I'm not probably going to get every Christian in America to buy Herman Sauce's Lonely Way Volume 2 and then skip the first 150 pages to get to this essay. What do I do? And uh, at that point, you know, Without Flesh was born as an idea. Well, what I do is I'm going to translate it into American, right? And it's, it, it sat a long time. I wanted to do this book following Broken. And uh, my editor, I think, wisely said, uh, let's, let's wait. Do something else first and do that one third. So, okay. And so now that's what happened. Okay, so so long story short, though, the, the book is structured around the skeleton of Sasa's essay. It is not Sasa's essay, but it's structured around the skeleton, the idea, the arguments. And so every chapter is headed by a quote from Dr. Sasa. But that's not all. Every chapter is also headed by a quote from someone who you might consider a father of the church. Now, this can be anyone from Dr. Luther to Cyprian, right? Uh, and I think I even throw Calvin in there. No, it's Zwingli. I forget which one it is. It's either Calvin or Zwingli is thrown in there once. Just to show the discord between what Sasa says and what the next comment says. Because what I show you is Sasa says this, here a father says this, and it's awful darn close. And then, oh, by the way, here's a verse from Scripture that says this. Now, what I love this. I had to, I had to push a little to get this, but I, I, I love that they let me do this. So the verses from Scripture do not cite Scripture. Instead, they give you the name of the author. And I love it even more what what it is on the on the first page, right? So so is the introduction of the book. We have these three things: Sasa, a quote from Luther, and then a quote from well, a scripture, but it's anonymous. Did you know we have anonymous scripture? We don't know who wrote it. You know this. You know this verse. I know you know this verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and forever. It tickles my heart to see that on a piece of paper and then have the dash anonymous after it because it, it testifies to even though the rest of these comments that are in these front of, of each chapter here are by real Christians, real confessors who had real struggling tentatio filled lives as they were, you know, as, as the scriptures themselves are ratioed over the top of them and meditatioed inside of them. It's not about the man's name. Ever, unless that name is Jesus Christ. And I can actually quote scripture, citing it with the individual and make the point that what they say matters more than who they are, even though who they are does in fact matter. Because when a church father says something, um, well, we should, we should listen at least before we disagree. And I think when, when Dr. Sasa says something, you really do well to listen as a modern Christian. So, so all right. So Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. What does Sasa say? How does Sasa say that? I, 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 and I just, I adore the way this guy writes. He says, what is wrong with our church? What is wrong with each one of us and our faith if such disintegration of our church was possible? 
Wow, that shit hit hard. It does hit. It's hitting me right now. It hits hard. See, the way that we American Christians, and I include Lutherans in this right now, very much we are included in this, the way that we respond to and handle the collapse of our congregations that's going on around us has been doing at least 25, 30 years since I've been watching. And I don't know. I mean, I can't really firsthand go back and say that it was, it was the seeds were there, but I, I, I don't know that it was actually happening. You can only, you could measure it the way you can measure it now. The, the instinct is to look at it and say, it's not our fault. We're doing everything right. Why is this happening? And Sasa just goes the other way. And I think he's so right. The first response should not be, oh, the church is dying, must not be my fault. The response should be, wait, the church is dying? What am I doing wrong? I must be doing something wrong. Now, I'm not talking about church growth. Don't get me wrong here. It's not just church growth. I'm talking about the faith of our children. And that's a different thing than church growth. Okay, so, so don't go off on that tangent. I'm with you. I'm with you. Church growth is not the answer. But if, if we have humans in the pew in one generation, and they're listening, and we have humans in the pew in the next generation, and they're kind of listening, and we have no humans in the next generation, it could be that we're just being faithful and the world is that strong, or... There's something wrong. And that's what he asks. And he's asking this question at a time that is both worse and in some ways better than, than ours. They had more people going to church still, I think. I think. But he's writing during the time of the Nazis. He's asking how on earth did they get control of this thing? How did we let this happen? And pastors, if you're listening, I mean, this should hit you more than anybody else. If people aren't listening to your sermons, is it because they're not listening to your sermons or is because you or is it because you suck as a preacher? And hey, hey, look, we're all gonna make mistakes. That's not the point. The point here is where do you go first? Do you blame someone else? Or do you acknowledge that you probably need to repent? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't change. So if the church needs to change or die, what happened? What already changed that made us in? Because if, if we need to change or die, you know what we need to do? We don't need to change forward. We need to change back. That's actually the premise of the book. We do need to change. Back. Dr. Martin Luther's quote, sitting right between these two, between Zasa and the anonymous author of the Hebrews, is a little Latin for you. My Latin pronunciation is not great, but I like to butcher it and pretend like it sounds good anyway, so deal with it. <laughs> Quid incertitudine imserius. Quid incertitudine... Uh, Quid incertitudine imserius. <laughs> what is more wretched than uncertainty. Oh, I love it. I love this page. I love this page. There is a woodcut of an angel. And the angel is 
looking down upon the text, and in the angel's hands, he's male, as angels are, so far as Revelation is concerned, he has two chalices, two fine cups, and one of them, it looks like he's trying to catch something with it. You can't really see what that is. The title of the chapter, the intro, is The Crisis of Crosslessness. First paragraph, upheaval is all around us. A messy, dark age of misinformation, distraction, and willfulness dominates us. Civilization trembles, besieged by gusts and surges. Impregnable institutions are collapsing while, by wit, will, and luck, power brokers ride the waves at a mad pace. In the midst of all this, for anything still trying to call itself a, quote, church, it is a terrifying time to be in business, much less to actively sail against the tide. But is any of it truly new? Or do we merely believe it to be so? To be sure, compared with our memories of those greener pastures only a few decades ago, pews are emptier, congregation budgets are dwindled, and church doors are closing. There's no question about that. It all looks authentically bleak. Yeah, what we must consider is what precisely the bleakness means. Have the times really changed? Is the church actually dying? Are we truly in danger of being subsumed beneath a new ominous culture of evil? Or is the only real difference a matter of our perspective? Is the only real change the fact that we have convinced ourselves that times have changed? Eh, that's all right, right? I, you, could, you could read that. That ain't bad. That ain't bad. Makes me want to do Audible. Hopefully we will. I uh, reached out to them about that. They, they'd asked me to Audible Echo, and the way that it was set up, there was just no way to do it uh, in terms of what was required from my end. And so... I actually offered with this one. I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it this time. We got to do Echo and this at the same time. And and they said, well, we're, we're looking into it. So I don't know. I know some of you asked about Echo, or not Echo, about Audible books, uh, audio books online. Uh, and it's just somewhere that CPH hasn't decided it's worth the investment yet. The, the only way you're going to get this to happen for any book from CPH is just to batter them with your, we will buy it. Uh, we want this. I'm not going to buy anything from you until you do this. Uh, that's the kind of thing that talks. And, uh, you know, that the buyer is who they are wanting to please. That's, that's good business practice. So, um, anyhow, uh, that made, that, that made me want to do it though. I, I feel like, I feel like there's something there. Um, so again, yeah, Elaine, I, I can't do audible unless CPH does audible. They own it. You know, there's a contract. This is their work now. They own it. I get royalties when it sells, but not a lot. And, <laughs> um, and they own it. So, uh, that'll be up to them. In fact, what I'm doing right now is maybe even not allowed, although, they know I'm going to promote this, so I'm promoting this. That's what we're doing. Without flesh, you can, again, you can pre-order it on Amazon. That's fine. I get it. You can do that. Or you can go over to cph.org, and there you will be able to get 20% off of Echo when you pre-order without flesh. Just use the code REVFISK, R-E-V-F-I-S-K, on checkout, and you'll get that bonus there. So uh, we'll do more of these kinds of tastes as we go uh, leading toward toward a launch in a month here, almost a month, just a little over a month. And uh, I, 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 I don't know, I don't like self-promotion, but um, this book ain't about me. <laughs> it's just, it's not, it doesn't talk about me much, if at all. Uh, this book is Herman Sauce's essay so that you can just absorb it absorb it like ooh 
Yeah, like Inception absorb it. Ah. So, with all that being there, and this still being a podcast, and it's still recording, and us only having taken 23 minutes, I, I have promised you a little Daniel. Now, I cannot promise this is going to be as good as as it was. Certainly, we don't have the story set up here, because where I went on the deep dive was back into the narrows of why of why Daniel has always been a a favorite whipping boy of liberal scholarship. You know, I, b- before they went to Daniel, I mean, you know, Six Day Creation and Jonah have always been the real. Those are the real ones they pull out when they feel like going nah, 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 nah at you. They, 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 they pull those out. Uh, Daniel is more like, like on Friday night, this is what they're, you know, toasting each other about how stupid Christians are over. Right? It's, it's, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an elite, bourgeois, intellectualized favorite argument. Everyone knows that Daniel wasn't written during the exile. Everyone knows that Daniel might have been a historical person, but that this was written by some rebellious Grecianized Jew during the rule of the Seleucids and Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth. Everyone knows it's so obvious. Because there's these, and this is what, what we're digging into here now, that, you know, there's these arguments that just can't be controverted. They can't be. Because modern scholarship has realized this. And, and what I love then about this, this thing from Steinman is like modern scholarship, my butt, you bunch of like, like rabbits, you know, just, just echoing rabbit. Is that the right word? Not rabbit. What's, what's an animal, uh, you know, mockingbirds? Yeah, kind of. Just a bunch of echoing um, yes men to this guy, uh, uh, Porphyry. Who made this argument, you know, way back in the third century? That it had to be some some Grecianized Jew during the Hellenistic reign of the Seleucids, all this stuff. And you just you're just parroting. There's the word, the bird. Um, the bird's the word, all that kind of stuff. Ma keen, bird, yeah. Now, is that an Easter egg with reference to a movie from the nineties that's funny? Or to something else that I don't know about, but was the Easter egg as it existed in the movie in the nineties? Makes me think of Samsonite. Oh, did you get it? Yeah, I hope so. Samsonite. <laughs> I was way off. Ah, <laughs> uh, the way that they get to this uh, support this argument from the third century is by raising objections to various historical references in Daniel that they say don't fit. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm having to look here again at the text a little bit to remind myself. So. Oh, so we talked about this one. So, for example, in Daniel 1, verses 1 to 2, and if you want the deep argument, go back and get God is Judging, you know, volume 1, the first episode on that. We, we did talk about this. They, they point out that Daniel does not talk about the reign of Nebuchadnezzar the same way that Jeremiah talks about the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore does not line up with what we also know historically about the reign of Nebuchadnezzar by like a year. Like he's off by a year. So obviously he doesn't know what he's talking about and revelation's impossible and there's no miracles. Well, I mean, this isn't their whole hat, but it's emblematic of their whole hat. It's emblematic of the arrogance that is used to read the Bible. And and this is where, this isn't just about bashing, you know, liberal scholarship here. This isn't just about bashing, bashing the lack of actual reason by reason touting progressives. It's, this really needs to be applied to us, to yourself here. And, and how you read the Bible, 
how careful you read the Bible. What do you assume when you read the Bible, especially when you're dealing with things like language? Things like language. Because when you read, and I, I don't have the narrows here right in front of me, but when you read in Daniel 1 that it was in the third year of Jehoiakim that Nebuchadnezzar conquered, and you read in Jeremiah that it was in the fourth year that he conquered, and you say, well, there's an error there. Before you've gotten to that statement, you have already placed yourself above the text, not as being above the Bible, but as being above historical documents, with the radically arrogant assumption that everybody counts the same way you do throughout all of history. And if you study ancient history carefully, you will see that that's just not the way it is. That they did not always count the way that we count. And sometimes they counted more than one way at the same time, depending on what they wanted to emphasize. They were not driven by the clock the way that we are. They did not have a calendar functioning the same way ours does. We are slaves to our calendar. We are slaves to the year. It's 2020, and there's no change in that, right? We, we've locked this thing in. That was not the case back then. And so if one references the third year and one references the fourth year, and they're talking about the same day, it has something to do with what is their marker of reference? Who are they talking to? And if I and now this part's from memory here. If I recall, the way that this is dealt with is, are you counting it from when Jehoiakim was uh, coronated? Or are you counting it from when uh, Jehoiakim uh, you know, when his when his father died, right? Something like that. that. That might not be the narrow one. You have to go back and listen to that first episode because I don't remember it. But it's something like that. And that both ways are legal ways to count in the ancient world. And so the Jeremiah writing kind of at the same time as Daniel, more or less, in different continents, so far as they were concerned, not really, well, kind of, depends on how you count the Middle East, um, in, in different countries, they might as well have been different continents, that they would both count differently but but in ways that are authentically usable, like this is not this isn't even like close to an argument. This is so far from an argument. The only argument here is that you're too arrogant to think that anybody in history was different than you and to think that, you know, that what you assume now about how history should feel has to be the judge, the arbiter of everything everybody else said. Although you would never apply it so much to any other part of history that you would therefore discount everything that said after it just because they did get one date wrong. That is what they do to Daniel. But, but, you still, you wouldn't even do it. You, you, you would give it the attention. We, modern American Christians who are conservative, need to do this with the New Testament. That's kind of my, my argument about the, the language here again. Yeah, the English here again. We need to not read our assumptions back into this thing. And I'm going to contest here that as, as American Lutherans of the Missouri Synod, um, we got some assumptions. We have some great stuff. But you don't know your assumptions are assumptions until you test them against the Scripture. We don't have assumptions. We only have Scripture. Okay, then test it. Because, um, yeah. If you just say you don't have any assumptions, well, that's an assumption, <laughs> right? I mean, I, you know, it's not the end all be all argument, but it's, it is kind of a thing. Uh, all right. So that argument about, about the first chapter of Daniel, you know, it's an historical an anomaly. It's where they go. But 
they also deal with then, and this is why we ended up here, the lack of certain mentioned names in the historical record outside of Daniel. So a good example is Belshazzar. This is the guy that caused me my problem uh, that I was reached out to by one of you to say, you know, maybe wrong. And um, and right, I was wrong. Uh, Belshazzar, this is the guy who's sitting at dinner, having a party, got a bunch of people over, you're out on the deck, got the pool there. You know, the, the wives are going to go away early. We got the girls coming later. I mean, you know, nasty kind of stuff, drinking deep. And he says, hey, in my first year here, the first weeks here is the king of Babylon, king of the world, king of kings. I think uh, I would like to toast our power and our gods by, by pulling up those holy implements. Do you remember seeing these down in the, in the treasury? The, those holy implements, they were nice from that temple. <laughs> those, and, you know, the guy, um, I can't think of his name now, Jehoiakim. You know, he may have actually had to be around at this point. He might have been dead by then. I don't wonder when he died. Um, but, you know, he was a noble at a certain point in the in the life of the, the Chaldeans. He was relieved or brought out of the prison, not by evil Marduk, I don't believe, um, uh, but by, maybe it was, though. I'm trying to remember. So, oh, man, it just all ties together and it starts to mush. Uh, any, in any case, one of the sons of Nebuchadnezzar brings him out and sets him among the nobility of, of Babylon. And this is how you get to Zerubbabel going back home as a governor eventually in the line of Jesus and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he's like, you know, hey, let's mock this guy maybe even, right? Remember how his people have this stuff? And let's get those holy implements. Let's bring them up. Let's drink it. Let's get drunk out of that stuff. And then they start toasting their gods and, and, and blaspheming Yahweh with his own Levitical Sinai created holy implements. You know, Aaron touched this stuff, right? Moses spoke of it from the tent as God described how it was to be made. And as they're doing this, this banshee of a hand just appears among them. Kind of thing, right? I, I, I think I think I could set this part of the story up better, and I probably did back when I was telling it before. Uh, but you know, you know, to describe this, this, I, this is where I want a geistly hand. I want like a good way to to do it. I can see it in my head like as a movie, but it's hard to, hard to tell it, right? Like some lady in the corner, what's that? And the guys, what do you mean? And they all turn, and they look, and they're glowing with green and deathly and pale, bones sticking out of its, you know, it's like it's like zombie-esque with bones sticking out of every edge of it, and long fingernails is a hand with no body. It's nobody's hand. <laughs> Father joke, watch out. It's a hand without a body, disembodied hand. And it's there, and it's moving amongst them with its long finger outstretched, and it goes to the wall, and it starts to scrape the wall. <laughs> and, and, like, in the wall, by, by shimmering power or blood or I, what, what, I don't know, it writes upon the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, you farson. Many, many Tekel, you farson. And now, they can't even read it, I don't think. Like, they don't even, it's just like symbols. What is that? You know, was it Hebrew? Was it Greek? Was it German? Certainly wasn't ancient Chaldean. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they couldn't read it. And there's this whole hubbub. Like, what the heck? The hand goes away. The writing's there on the wall. What was this? Um, what was, what book was that? Oh, oh, uh, I don't know if any of you are into the, um, sorry, coffee. Um, the Stormlight Archive, Brandon Sanderson. Uh, 
I've read all three. I think I've only got three that are out. It's it's decent read, long read. Uh, Brandon Sanderson's the guy who finished the Robert Jordan series when he died and left it unfinished and did a much better job uh, finishing it than Jordan did for the previous six books or so. The Jordan wrote four great books at the start. Um, Brandon Sanderson was the one who was like brought in to like find this guy's like millions of pages of notes and finish this story. Uh, so he's got his his like life work so far as he's concerned. He's got a bunch of stories, but it, it's called the Stormlight Archives, and it's it's pretty good. It's it's tough to get into. I didn't like the third book as much. Second book was phenomenal. Um, in any case, a, a major character in that he keeps having these seizures, and during these seizures, he's having visions. And whenever he wakes up from the vision, or at least sometimes when he wakes up from the vision, he's been like in a locked room so no one else can see it. He's a noble. And so all his people don't want anybody else to know he's having these seizures so they won't stop following him, especially since there's kind of a battle between him and another guy for control of stuff. And so, you know, he's he's kept in these locked rooms during these seizures, which always go with these big storms that are going over. Really cool world development. Sanderson's a master of world development. You know, whether the story's any good is debatable sometimes. But, uh, you know, that uh, I've also read his... Um, uh, oh, now I can't think of it. Uh, it's it, with a metal uh, allomancy. Uh, magic in this world is all based upon like using metal and swallowing it and then burning it. It's really, really cool. World development is phenomenal. So he's locked in this room, has a seizure. He wakes up and like there's just stuff written on the wall. And it's like 12 days. What do you mean 12 days? Well, it's 12 days. What do I do with this? I'm in a locked room. I passed out. I woke up. Somebody... Did they come in through the window? I don't know. Was it me? I don't know. You know they I, I wrote 12 days on the wall. What does it mean, 12 days? Right. So, so that's just happened to Belshazzar, right? And all those people, and they're like freaked out. And, and, and justifiably so. If you woke up this morning and on your bedroom wall, it said, you know, imagine like, like you know, Dorvin or, or, or Orkin or, or Elven runes are just inscribed in glowing gold on your wall. Holy, mm. you're going to fall on your knees and pray, right? Well, it's not what Belshazzar does. He freaks out, but he does kind of. He calls the sorcerers, the magicians, those who speak for the gods in his place. Although it's interesting because previous kings and you know his fathers had, had more or less said everyone should call upon the true God, who this guy Daniel knows. And Daniel's still there, but he doesn't know about Daniel somehow. Long story there. That actually gets back to our, our narrows, which we'll come back to. Uh, so these guys come in and they can't read it, right? They, I don't know what it is, which I don't get these guys. I would so affect it. I would so affect it. Like, like, look, it's a weird rune that nobody can read, right? The king's freaked out. Hey, king, I can read it. It says that you should enjoy more chicken and less pork, right? Or, <laughs> you know, um, it says uh, that next year will be a normal year with maybe some rain and maybe some famine. That's what it says. We're good. <laughs> and if they knew their history at all, you know, it says that the next time that there is bumper crops, you should store some up in case there's a famine. The gods would like you to do well. Why do they not lie? I don't get it. I, they're pagans. They're pagan sorcerers. Why do they not lie? But they don't. They don't lie. They say we can't do it. And long story short, it's already long and longer uh his his mom which may have been his grandma or his great grandma or his mom says don't you remember the guy that we call now i'm gonna belteshazzar not belshazzar but belteshazzar i think i got it wrong earlier i confused the two so daniel's name is belteshazzar in the chaldean which has to do with uh, you know bell the god of the chaldeans saved the king 
right? Uh, it's his name. And don't you remember God saved the king? That greatest of all sorcerers who your father trusted so implicitly? And so they bring him in, they bring Daniel in, and he's, he reads it. Many, many, tackle you farce. And there, there it is. That's what it says. And I'll tell you what it means too because you don't know the language. It means measured, measured, weighed, found wanting. It's all about balances and scales. Imagine like, you know, you're, you're, you're measuring the silver coin against a lead weight to make sure that it's not got fake metal in it. And Daniel says, well, that, this is you, Belshazzar. This is you. Measured, measured, weighed, found wanting. And tonight, your kingdom will be taken from you. And that very night it happened. And the Persians take over the city. And all the historians go, <laughs> it's all a myth. Because there was no Belshazzar. All the historians from Porphyry, I don't know if he did it specifically, from the 18th century, it's all stupid. There is no Belshazzar. And in the last episode that we did on this, on Daniel, it was way back, you're going like a year ago now, I think, I tried to make the case that Belshazzar is a name for Nabonius. Nabonius was a great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, something like that. Third or fourth in line, it, they went pretty quick. There were like two guys that only reigned for like a year, right? So it, it went pretty fast. After, after after Nebuchadnezzar, there was not really a good Babylonian king. And I'm not talking Christian-wise. I'm talking like earth-wise. There's a reason they fell. Uh, so I tried to make the case it was Nabonius. You could also make the case... Actually, I didn't make that case. I then tried to make the case it was evil Marduk, who is the actual son of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Yeah. Or Abel Marduk. And, and not a good king either. But but here's here's what's just so beautiful about archaeology. So I did all of that, and I was, and you know, one of you wrote to me, you were wrong, and I was wrong. Here's the funny thing. So the 1800s were a long time ago, right? Right? Like what? It's 20, 2019? Oh, no, wait, it's 2020, isn't it? Yeah, 2020. How long ago was 1870? 150 years. It's a long time ago. Has much changed? I mean, I know I made the argument nothing's really changed, and, I, I, and that's true. But, like, look, I'm looking at this, like, little black thing on top of this bigger black thing that's shooting light at me with words on it. And the little black thing has blue lines and a circle. And, and then in it is this thing that looks like it's looking at me because you are. But it's not you. It's a wire, and it runs, and it goes. right. I mean, that's just, like, the last couple of years. 150 years ago. Someone makes the argument. Well, we've looked at all the historical data, and there's no such person as Belshazzar. So, therefore, Daniel's wrong. And ever since, everyone just says, well, there's no such person as Belshazzar. There's no such person. There's no such person. There's no such person. There's no such person. Hmm. Now, I really would like to just jump immediately to the quote, but I'm going to have a little trouble with that because I don't know where it is. I've been talking too long. Oh, where is it? Come now, come now. Leaving them with bated breath. Come now. Ugh, this is what happens when you don't make notes. Okay, well, that could have been done better. The long and short, I can find it if I just read through it and read it out loud. The long and short, have you guessed it already? Oh, see, so Josephus, yeah, so the argument was there even even in the 300s. Josephus defends the historicity of Daniel by countering that Belshazzar may have been the name for uh, Nabonidus. I said Nabonius earlier, Nabonidus. 
However, beginning in the 1860s, Babylonian sources came to light naming Belshazzar the son of Nabonidus. In the 1860s. They came to light. So it took a while for scholarship to catch up to this. It's not even new! In the 1860s, there came to light a historical record of a guy named Belshazzar. He is the son of Nabonidus. He was made regent over Babylon in the third year of his father's reign. All memory of Belshazzar has been lost to history outside the Bible and works dependent on it. This seemed to furnish proof that the writer of Daniel 5 had to have had a contemporary to the events, since later writers, especially the Maccabean writers, would have no knowledge of Belshazzar. So so it's even better, though. So it's, so, it's so much better than just finding that there actually was a Belshazzar in a record that's not from the Bible. Is that Belshazzar was such a bad and short-lived king, like the story of Daniel tells. He was so bad and short-lived that even though we have records of every other king of Babylon and who they are and what they did, they didn't even record him. Because he got killed like the night of his, or, not ordination, the night of his coronation. He didn't even get recorded. And so all of history, with the exception of a couple of records that were randomly finally found in corners, not the main stuff, all of history has forgotten this guy even exists, except Daniel, who was actually there and wrote it down. And we're sitting here from the, the arrogant 20th century saying, well, he's just making stuff up. He has no knowledge of ancient history. He was the only one who knew. That's stunning. That is a stunning counter to the accusation that Daniel is historically inaccurate when he is the only guy through all the chain of normal history who recounts this guy who actually was there at that specific time. How is some Jew in the the Hellenistic Seleucid period fighting against Antiochus Epiphanes IV hundreds of years later going to know about this guy and reference him by name? How is he going to do that since there are no other records of this guy? The only one who could do this is a guy who sat there during the fall of the Babylonian Empire after this guy's coronation into the Persian and lived to tell the story. Like Daniel. Is that cool or what? Golly, that's cool. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I don't, you have these moments when you doubt, don't you? I mean, we talked about this, I think, last week a little bit. You gotta have moments when you doubt. There's no way. If, if you're paying attention, you're gonna doubt. You're gonna wonder. Oh man, this stuff is just is just so super fantastic. It's really hard to just always believe it because the 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 tenets of modern thought just seem so powerful. And what I love is that while that's definitely there as a temptation and it, and it hits you, it hits your soul sometimes. You get these moments here too where it's like, "Oh, wait a minute. For hundreds of years, we derided Daniel as unbelievable." And that's the kind of thing that leads to these doubts I'm talking about. It's the tool the devil uses to make you doubt. Hundreds of years. Only to find out we're idiots. We're complete idiots. We're in the dark. And talking like we see. We're blind men shouting about what an elephant looks like. Uh, You know that one? What a terrible argument. We're, We're blind men shouting about what an elephant looks like when the elephant's talking. And saying, I look like this. And we're like, no, you don't. I know better. And the light comes on. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, he does look like that. Hmm. Despite the clear refutation of the skepticism concerning Belshazzar's existence, critical scholars continue to dismiss the story. They challenge two statements about Belshazzar, that he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar and that he was a king. Now, this is fair. Okay, so he's called the son of Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel, but... 
Technically, he would have been the son of Nabonidus, significantly removed from Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we're going to come back to that. The issue of Darius the Mede is also thrown in for this reason, because unlike Belshazzar, we still have not found an actual recording of who Darius the Mede is. And uh, I'm going to spend more time on that in the future, I think, because he does in, in the commentary. Critical scholars often supplement these historical objections by other observations. Among these, I think this, this is so interesting. Among these, the presence of Persian and Greek loan words, as well as the type of Aramaic and Hebrew found in the book. Okay, so again, you got to be a real nerd to, to make these arguments and to like them. So cheers. Uh, but with that said, so let me translate for you. They make the argument that the reason Daniel cannot be from the guy, Daniel, who would have lived at the time it says he lived at is because there are words in the book, the Greek words, Hebrew words, and Aramaic words that he couldn't possibly have known at that time. That he would not have known or used these words. And so the fact that they're there show that it's from a different time. Now, and this is incontrovertible, of course. You're you're a fool to not know this. I mean, think about it. If you, if you were reading something like you found a new piece of Shakespeare, someone's like, oh, "I found a new thing of Shakespeare," and he's like, "La computadora," right? <laughs> you know, it's like written in in like the sonnet from Shakespeare. It's talking about the computer and the Wi-Fi. You're gonna be like, "Yeah, fake," right? Uh, totally fake. Obviously, so. So, like, the argument is it, it, it totally makes sense if if you are gonna if the book of the Bible has random words from other countries and different times, then that would call into question, at the very least, its transmission, its copy. But the thing is, the argument that Greek, Aramean, and Hebrew words on loan from other places that couldn't be there are in the book, well, it's, I mean, that's the way they'll say it. Like, when they're going to argue it, that's what they're going to say. You haven't accounted for, and they're going to drop three languages on you, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramean, and in the text, and, and, and that calls it all into question. What they're not going to say is, well, there is the possibility that some of the language, maybe from these three languages, maybe would have had trouble being known by a guy named Daniel at that time, and that really... One of them is not even an argument, and the other one really actually goes against my point. And then the other one is totally easy to answer. Instead, they're gonna like they're gonna act like it's all this really solid wall, right? So, you know, the presence of Pers Persian and Greek loan words, Aramaic and Hebrew. Uh, oh, so here's the argument, right? Uh, driver is the guy who who Sr. Driver summarizes it this way, and this will be often quoted in in the literature, I guess. The Persian words presuppose a period after the Persian Empire had been well established. The Greek words demand, the Hebrew supports, and the Aramaic permits a date after the conquest of Palestine by Alexander the Great, which is, you know, many, many, many years later, multiple generations later. You got, you got Cyrus, you got uh, Darius, you got Xerxes, right? All that's passed through um, and uh, before Alexander comes along. And so he's, 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 he's saying, again, Follow the language is really interesting. The Persian words presuppose, the Greek words demand, the Hebrew words support, and the Aramaic permits. A date much later for Daniel. So, if you go and start looking at 
Uh, we'll just skip that part. It, it, he goes into a little bit of a tangent on, you know, well, how did this book show up? You know, cl- classic redaction theory that there were multiple authors and some guy just kind of threw it all together in a pile. He wasn't very smart, so it didn't make a lot of sense. And he left all these marks that we can see that show us how they have different sources and it isn't really his own unique work, certainly not from his time. And uh, and so they end up like, well, then then what is what are the sources, right? And like, it's all over the map. Nobody can decide what the sources actually are. I mean, they do this with the New Testament too, uh, with the Q stuff. Uh, nobody can decide what the sources actually are. Up to 10 different authors, one for each chapter. I mean, it's just, it's just it gets to be like nonsensical. It's, you can't even study the book at a certain point. There's no, there's no knowledge anymore. Um. But while there's no widespread agreement as to the composition of the stories and a little consensus on that, there is widespread agreement that uh, the final redaction took place in 165 BC, the time of the Maccabees. Uh, and it's all, again, related to Darius, Belshazzar. These are, the, these are the tools that they use to just foist their assumption about non-supernatural history uh, onto the text, right? So, so what we're going to do then, again, we've, we've answered Belshazzar a little bit. Darius will take another time later, uh, but I, I want to deal with this, these arguments about the words because the words, it's just, it's just absolutely fascinating. So uh, the Hebrew language characteristics in Daniel, I'm sorry, does that sound boring to you? Uh, why the Hebrew of Daniel is the Hebrew of Daniel's time <laughs> uh, and not the Hebrew of, of uh, uh, Judah's Maccabeus time. So he, uh, Simon's really gentle here. When Driver wrote his quoted dictum about the language of Daniel, that, that bit above demands, the Greek demands, he could not have foreseen the effect of later research on the discoveries of ancient Hebrew, right? So this is the, this is the main point we should take from this today for all of us. Like, like, you really don't know what we might still discover about the ancient world. So when you start saying, there's none of this, there's no of that, well, you, you know, that's an argument from silence, right? You know, an argument from silence is anything but logical. And certainly is not conclusive. You know, I've never seen God, therefore he doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think that's a reason to believe in God. Pascal's wager, I don't think is a reason to believe in God. But like your argument from silence is is like technically idiotic. Like it's like it's, it's one of the ways you define what idiocy is, is is did you make an argument from silence? Oh, you're a moron. I'm sorry, this is not a pejorative term. This is not me trying to describe how I don't like you. I'm trying to describe the level of thinking you're working at. Like a first grader thinks this way. But grown people who study reasonable conclusions don't make arguments from silence and call them conclusive. About anything. There's no infant baptized in the Bible. Yeah, you're right. There's no women communed either. Hmm. What do we do about that? Should we commune the ladies or not, guys? I don't know. I mean, they've kind of taken over the place. Can't we have something that's just for us these days? We're not allowed to smoke at meetings anymore. <laughs> oh, man. The history of the LCMS. If you don't get it, all that, I'm sorry. Go ask your pastor. You know, um, he, he may not get it either. Tangent. Um, the <laughs> I remember the. Uh, it was not the Mission Plant Church, but after, you know, I'd sat on my patio and, and read the Sasa and, and didn't have work for nine months, which I should have taken as a license to just love my life. But instead, I lived in fear the whole time. I had a, and two babies at that point, uh, one new one. Um, I did receive a call to go down to Philadelphia. And and at some point in the Philadelphia area, uh, I was cleaning out the, the church office. Um, you know, there was no secretary. It was just me. I took some heat for cleaning. I mean, they had a computer. The computer, I think, I mean, let me remember here. I think the computer had... 
I think the RAM was like 25 megs. Something like that. 25 megs. Like you couldn't, it took like 15 minutes to boot. <laughs> it, was, it was so bad. Anyhow, I'm, I cleaned the place out, the drapes, oh, just dusty and gross, anything. Way back in the corner of a bookshelf, behind some old liberal books. Charismatic books. Why are those always kind of hanging around places that are having trouble? Uh, I found two or three glass cigarette ashtrays. I thought, well, what the heck is this? Why? In this, you know, right off the sanctuary in this cute little northeastern church, white steeple church, in this dusty gross room. But like it just is, you know, kind of what you'd expect a little bit in an LCMS world with LCMS books, like catechetical helps and like, you know, uh, I forget who the uh, the commentary is. I really don't like from that era. Anyway, Cressman, is it Cressman? I don't like I can't remember. There's two of them. Um, uh why are there these like glass cigarette ashtrays sitting here? That's really weird. So I pulled them out and I started asking around and uh, nobody at the church knew they were there. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. No idea. And uh, my buddy, I won't add him by name, but my buddy, a local pastor there, he's now in Wisconsin. Uh, I asked him about it and he goes, oh, well, that's, that's from before women's suffrage. I said, What? What do you mean it's before women's suffrage? Well, back when, when the men voted and you only had men on the council, council was where they went to smoke because they weren't allowed to smoke at home. And it's like, oh man, it makes so much sense. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. It makes so much sense though. So like, like council, the reason why people didn't mind having really long, boring council meetings as men was because it was their smoke room and they would go to church and do the lack of business business that takes too long, right? Let, let's let's debate whether we buy some light bulbs and uh and, and they'd get their chance to smoke their cigarettes for the week together in the office. I'm told this was not a unique scenario in the Missouri Senate in the fifties and sixties. Uh, this was this was pretty standard practice. Um now how did I get on this? Uh I I just think it's hilarious to me. Uh, where it's not hilarious, I should say. Thanks for the likes, by the way. Um, where it's not hilarious, by the way, is where it does say something. There's something here. It's not about smoking. It's not about tobacco. It's about men having a place to be men and not having it taken from them. Because when you take away from men the place where they can be men, well, they die. Their, their masculinity dies. And I don't know. Ladies, you kind of just have to trust me on this one. Um, guys, you all know this is true. If you have three guys in a room, they're hanging out and talking. There's a certain feel. And if a lady walks in, it changes. And what happens is respect goes up. Okay? This isn't derogatory. Like, they're like, oh, we should stop being animals now. Because she's here. But But with that... With that stopping being animals in terms of like, we're not going to burp and fart, right? Uh, there's also a level of, we're going to withhold our actual thinking. We're not going to talk. We will, we'll talk, but we're going to like put a, sh a new filter on the whole thing. And we're going to defer to her talking. If she talks, we will not correct her. We will not correct her. Now, 
That's good, I think. It's called chivalry. It is, it is to say, you, woman, are of such value to humanity that we would not want to embarrass you in front of others who are not your husband, your father, your love, right? Your children. We don't want to embarrass you anyway, but especially we're not going to embarrass you publicly. We, we wouldn't want to do that. That would be awful. It would be shaming. We don't need to do that. And so rather than say, you know, you're wrong, uh, we're, we're going to say, which we would say to a guy, like, that's stupid. We would say to a guy, you're not going to say that to a lady. Instead, we just kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Hmm. And we just kind of keep it inside. Okay, so now take that and put that into politics in the church. That's, that, that explains almost everything in, in, in one way right now. If you go to a voters meeting or a council meeting, like that, that's a big piece of it. Uh, everything that's kind of collapsing is because guys won't talk. Because they don't want to be put in a position where they have to tell somebody, married or not, that she's wrong publicly. And the cigarette story is what taught me that. It's, it's not just about getting together to have the cigarettes. Uh, when, when we brought you ladies into the governance in the congregation, in that way, we de facto took the guys out. This is how it works. I mean, guys are still there. If you gotta, you got to win someone, you might still follow, and you can kind of move stuff around. Um, through gentility, you can manage it. But only with the most capable of people. And the fact is, we're not all capable people. Hmm. Anyway, back to Daniel. Back to Daniel. Cigarettes. So somehow we got onto cigarettes. And, oh, what was this? We're dealing with Daniel. We're dealing with ancient Hebrew and the dating of the conquest. Okay. Yeah, we didn't actually start it, did we? How did I get out of that? Dear goodness um all right so driver this guy who's oft quoted oh how he couldn't have foreseen ha what would happen later now somehow that's what did it anyhow so he asserts this so the, the point here is that the guy we quoted earlier who says that none of the language even allows you to consider daniel as the real author and all of it more or less forces you to say he wasn't he didn't he couldn't see the future so he didn't know he was missing a lot of the information about actual Hebrew. So when he says the Hebrew supports a date after the conquest, after Persia takes over Babylon, the Hebrew supports it. He was so dead wrong as to be again, idiotically nonsensical, but it's not his fault because he was only working with what he knew and he was right so far as what he knew, but what he knew wasn't everything. And so the problem again is the arrogance of thinking that you already know all that will ever be known about the past argument from silence. That's kind of how we got there. I still don't know. How, how do we get from argument of silence to uh, to, to cigarette ashtrays? I, I don't know. But arguments from silence are the thing that we we want to be really careful about, especially historically. Just because we don't have it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So uh, he goes a little you know, more into the weeds here. You know, Driver again says, there's nothing about the Hebrew of Daniel that could be considered extraordinary for a bilingual or perhaps in this case. I'm sorry, this isn't him. No, this is this is a counter conclusion. Uh, based on current evidence, there is nothing about the Hebrew of Daniel that could be considered out of the ordinary for a bilingual or even trilingual speaker of the language in the 6th century BC at the time it says he wrote. Moreover, Daniel's Hebrew can now be compared to the Hebrew of sect, uh, sectarian scrolls from Qumran. These sectarian documents from the 2nd century, century BC onward show a number of characteristics of Hebrew language written in the Hasmonean. This is 165 to 37 BC and the Herodian uh, after 36 BC. 
The difference between the Hebrew portions of Daniel and the Hebrew of these documents is striking. So here's, here's um, the way to look at this one. So now you're saying that Daniel was written by a Jew living during the Hasmonean period, which is, again, the Maccabean period. Hasmoneans uh, were the, the Maccabeans, when they kind of ruled for a while, it was the Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, so you're saying that it was written during that period to talk about the fall of Antiochus Epiphanes IV after his fall and using Nebuchadnezzar's son as an example of this for the sake of this building of a kingdom in the second century. And you're making your argument based on linguistic evidence and how the linguistic Hebrew couldn't possibly be from 600 BC. It had to be from 200 BC. And yet when you look at other documents from 200 BC and you put Daniel next to it, it's like you're trying to read Greek beside it. Like it shouldn't, it's not quite that bad, but it's like King James versus NIV. Like I don't, I don't, I don't care who you are. If you try to write like the King James version of the Bible, like you just, you're going to write a letter. You're going to write King James style. Let's not say a letter. You're going to write an essay. You're going to write a 25-page essay, King James style English. Go do it right now. Oh, I can do that. Okay, you go do that. And you let some scholar who spent a lifetime in just that language era look at your work. He's going to be like, well, look at this. They never did that. This doesn't fit at all. This looks like it was written by someone today trying to mimic that. And that's what they're accusing Daniel of doing. And yet when you... When you look at it, it looks like the actual stuff from the 6th century. Like it couldn't have been done. You couldn't do that. Nobody could do that. So that's that's how the Hebrew doesn't support a late date for Daniel, but in fact mandates an early date for Daniel. That's just one of the four languages. That's the easy one. Uh, uh, but a quote from uh, here, uh, Archer. Um, concludes this, uh, it seems abundantly clear that, that a second century date for the Hebrew chapters of Daniel is no longer tenable on linguistic grounds. In view of the markedly later development exhibited by the second century documents in the areas of syntax, word order, morphology, that's how the words are shaped, vocabulary, spelling, and word usage, there is absolutely no possibility of regarding Daniel as contemporary to second century stuff. Uh, otherwise, we must surround... I love this. Otherwise, what do you mean? So if we're going to try to make the case from linguistics alone, that Daniel is second century, we must surrender linguistic evidence altogether and assert that it is completely devoid of value in the face of subjective theories derived from anti-supernaturalistic basis, uh, biases. Uh, you know, if it isn't from the sixth century as Hebrew, then we don't even need to study language. It doesn't make a sense anymore. There's nothing we could do, right? Um, hmm. Yeah, so so uh, Aramaic. Moving on, next language. Driver was less certain about the Aramaic evidence and so stated only that he thought it permitted a date after 332. Subsequent studies have confirmed that the Aramaic of Daniel is imperial Aramaic, which was current from about the 7th century BC to about 300 BC. And he quotes uh, some various people on this, but the long and short is that the Aramaic's from the right time period and not the Aramaic that a Maccabean would have known. Uh, Persian and Greek loanwords. <clears throat> Daniel's Hebrew and Aramaic use a relatively high proportion of loanwords from two languages. Akkadian, which I don't know much about, but I think it's a really cool word, A-K-K-A-D-I-A-N. It's from Grecia. <laughs> it's from, you know, Proto-Greece. And Old Persian. In addition, there are three Greek loanwords used in Daniel chapter 3. 
That Daniel contains loan words from Old Persian is acknowledged by nearly all scholars, though some caution should be exercised in identifying them since little evidence of Old Persian survives. So people say, uh, Daniel's got these words that are not Hebrew, they're not Aramaic, they're Old Persian. And he just put Persian words, Old Persian words, into his book. And now you know, Simon says, yeah, that's what we think, but we actually don't have them recorded anywhere else. <laughs> so they look like Old Persian, but we don't know. This is the only source. Uh, but they are, if Persian, they are specifically Old Persian. This is from Kitchen's commentary. Uh, the recognized divisions of Persian language history within Iranian are. So, so the language of, old, of, of Persian has these eras, right? English, we have modern English. We got uh, Shakespearean English or Victorian English, uh, which are not quite the same thing. We got uh, Middle English, which is pre-Shakespeare. We got Old English, which is basically like Norse, uh, it, it, you know, with some Germanic Saxon thrown in. Uh, and it, you, if you tried to read Old English, I've done it. I studied the history and structure of the English language. I know it's boring, but, but I find it fascinating. Uh, you try to read Old English, you won't be able to do it. As an English speaker, you will say, this is not English. But see, it is. You just don't know it because the language has devolved. It always is. Always devolving. It's devolved that much. It's changed that much. So these Persian words are Old Persian. Very narrow category. And here's the divisions of how Persian language developed. I just gave you English. Here's Persian. Old Persian was prior to 300 BC, which means prior to the Maccabees. Middle from about 300 BC to AD 900, right? So uh, Koine Greek time, uh, into Latin time, really, and and new Persian from 900 to the present. The fact that, continuing to read, the fact that the Iranian element in Daniel is from Old Persian and not Middle indicates that the Aramaic of Daniel is in respect pre-Hellenistic, before Alexander, which means before Antiochus Epiphanes. Pre-Hellenistic, it drew on no Persian from after the fall of that empire and not on any Middle Persian words and forms. He, he couldn't have quoted the Persian words he did after the fall of Persia. Wouldn't have happened. Therefore, the presence of Persian words in Daniel does not present an argument for a date of composition later than about 560 BC. Not even close to the Maccabean times. The Greek words in Daniel, shifting, are often considered the strongest indication, as Coxon observes. Uh, I'm not going to read it. Coxon presents evidence. Uh, oh, yeah, I will read it. So, liberal critic, of all the linguistic arguments which have been used to debate the concerning, the concerning age of the Aramaic sections of Daniel and the date of the composition of the book, the Greek loans seem to provide the strongest evidence in favor of a 2nd century B.C. Now remember, the other three now show conclusively it couldn't have been the 2nd century. Okay, well, But there's these, these, these Greek words that make it the 2nd century. It demands it, right? And yet, the same guy, apparently, when you know dealing with the etymology of one of the words, indicates that it came from an older word <laughs> that would have been there before. Uh, you know, the Ionic versus the Attic. And this gets into, you know, the history and structure of the Greek language, which I don't know much about either. Although the Greek has such cool things. You know, Akkadian, Ionic, Attic. Th- those just sound cool to me. Anyway, probably has something to do with a game called, what was that game called? Nintendo game. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, it was a lot like, and you guys don't like me because I like Adventure of Link, right? Um, it was like that style. You even look the same. You hit with a sword the same way. And, uh, oh, goodness. It was, it was set in Greece, and you're fighting against like the, the, the pagan 
not pagan, like the, the Greek, Greek mythological beast, and you have to go save your, your beloved who got bit by a snake and was down in Hades, which is a lot like Greek mythology, but they didn't really do it quite the same. Um, started with an O. What a game. Anyhow, you go to you go to Attica, I believe, in that game. And so, so Attic Greek. I like the word. Well, maybe it's just my, my eight-year-old in me. Any case, there's only three Greek loan words in Daniel. All of them in the same chapter, all of them references to musical instruments. We talked about this when we went through chapter three. They're all names for musical instruments. And, you know, the long and short of this, a guy named Yamachi has done, I guess, the, the magisterial work on the evidence. But it's not like Persia never traded with the Greeks. And so contact between the Near East and the Aegean, well before Alexander and any of the wars that would have taken place with the Persians provides plenty of evidence of early Semitic evidence influence of Greek, early Semitic influence on the Greek language. So the language of Aramaic and Hebrew actually seeping into the Greek language further back, which would mean that they had contact, which means that they could trade things, which means that maybe they saw an instrument and said, ooh, that's pretty cool. I'm a king. I want that. So he concludes, we may safely say that the presence of Greek words in the Old Testament book is not proof of a Hellenistic date. Such evidence has led critical scholars to admit he quotes a critic here. The evidence for Greek influence on Daniel is too slight to prove anything. Therefore, neither the Persian nor the Greek loanwords offer any proof of themselves. They do not provide any conclusive evidence. The best that can be said about the linguistic evidence is that it suggests that Daniel was not written before 560 BC and certainly was not later than 300 BC, which means there's no way it was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. No way. Then you got the historical data. Or he's back into the lack of evidence, apparent contradictions. We talked about this already. If there's an apparent contradiction between Daniel and some other data, critics automatically assume Daniel to be in error. But the assumption of Daniel's lack of trustworthiness means that critics didn't bother to consider possible solutions and shows what at first blush, that could show what at first blush appears to be a contradiction is not, as is the case with Daniel 1 and Jeremiah 25. These apparent contradictions are resolved. I love this. This is probably my favorite quote in the whole thing so far. These apparent contradictions are resolved if one pays attention. <laughs> he says more than that, but the period should just be there. These apparent contradictions are resolved if one pays attention. And it's just so true. It's, it's that whole point about time from earlier, our assumptions about the past. You know, you, if you're going to make pronouncements about the past, you should pay attention to the past. If you pay attention to the ways that information was reported in ancient sources and understand them according to their own conventions, there are no contradictions or arguments against Daniel aside from an anti-supernaturalistic bias, which as uh, in Gary Habermas's conversation with Anthony Flew on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, valuable little resource. Anthony Flew, the guy who wrote the book on atheism for the 20th century, in that book, he acknowledges in the face of the evidence being presented by Habermas, that the only argument against the resurrection of Jesus is that it's impossible. That's the only argument. There is no historical argument against it. There is no evidential archaeological argument against it. The only argument is that it can't be true. It just can't. Why? Because it's supernatural. That's why. Anti-supernaturalistic bias, anti-miracle bias. And that's the only argument for Daniel being a 2nd century BC book is anti-supernaturalistic bias. Which makes you have to ask, why then do some conservative Christians listen to this stuff? They, you know, hello, Missouri Synod. You know, we got we got guys here from the last era. 
mean, they didn't they didn't buy into the whole Jonah wasn't real thing, but they definitely bought into the Daniel dating thing. And they've been teaching it out there. Why? What'd you get? What'd it gain us? Well, Darius was never mentioned in history. Okay. I mean, you know, do you have do you have record of Ruth other places too? Was she not real? Abraham Abraham probably was. I, I don't know if Abraham was. From contemporaries? Job. Well, of course they go there, right? Oh, Job, I don't know. You Probably poetry. You might just be a play. Okay. For Pete's sake. For Pete's sake. All right. So we are still in a podcast, and yet I'm looking at YouTube again here. And I want to check out. Oh, there we go. So podcast peoples, uh, don't wall in the muck. Rock on.